On the 20th of July, 1916, just four days before his 21st birthday, the poet Robert Graves died at the Battle of the Somme. The battle had been raging for nearly three weeks, and Captain Graves, preparing to support the assault on High Wood, was hit by shell shrapnel in the leg and chest whilst running for cover through um, a somewhat symbolically charged cemetery. He was moved by stretcher bearers to an old German dressing station at the recently captured Mamet's Wood and left for dead. A message along these lines went to his colonel, who wrote to Graves' parents immediately that their son was very gallant and had died of wounds. What I've just told you is and is not true. It may be, according to the saying, that truth is the first casualty of war, through propaganda or sheer confusion or both. It's certainly the case that in war, all kinds of truths, all kinds of ways of knowing, become contested, elusive and paradoxical. For the next day, July the 21st, Graves was found to be not actually dead, despite the night's neglect. He was just about still alive. Back home amongst his family and friends, all kinds of contradictory information was arriving all at the same time. And it wasn't until August the 5th and the court circular in the Times that the official record was put straight. Um, And here you've got a snippet from uh, that paper. Captain uh, Robert Graves, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, officially reported died of wounds, wishes to inform his friends that he is recovering from his wounds at Queen Alexandra's Hospital Highgate. Um, No such luck for Mr Samuel Twining, unfortunately, whose memorial service was going ahead that day. That's a research project for you. (laughs) With hindsight, it is fair to say that this early death saved Robert Graves' life. He was so seriously wounded that despite his subsequent efforts and a brief return to the Somme in February 1917, he would not find himself in a place of extreme frontline danger again for the rest of the war, um, although he wasn't finally demobilised until early 1919. In the immediate aftermath of this near-death experience, the young Graves seemed in relatively good spirits, with all the ebullience of youth clinging on to uh, life nearly lost. Um, This is an image from the First World War Poetry Digital Archive, and... Um, it's a letter to Siegfried Sassoon. It is published, it's collected in Graves' selected letters, but what you don't get there it are the um, fantastic marginali- marginalia drawings. Um, so here we have him saying, um, uh, talking about the mouse that ran down his back, down his neck, and was finally killed by a punch in the small of his back. But he's drawn his own uh, memorial stone, the obelisk with RG on it. And uh, once again, here inviting Sassoon um, to Harlech, um, tell me so by return of post, um, and then the cross, and more sous le champ d'honneur, dead on the field of, of honour, your departed friend, Roberto. <laughs> that August, he also wrote a letter to Ed, uh, Edward Marsh, editor of the Georgian Poetry Anthologies, who we've been hearing about, containing a whimsical account of his near-death experience, told with what um, Paul Fussell identifies 
um, as a tendency towards theatrical staginess. And I think Fussell is right, although we'd call it something else now. Robert Graves is um, famous, amongst many things, for his accounts of the Greek myths. I'm sure many of us will have gone to Graves um, to find out about the myths. And in this letter to Marsh, he uh, layers contemporary warfare with the classically mythological. This is a theme that's developing already. And he throws in a line from Charles Sawley's poetry as well, um, which is also cropped up. So on the way to Hades or Hell and crossing Lethe, the river of forgetfulness, he writes this, passage one on the handout... Um, and I'm going to rattle through this. I had only just time to put on my gas helmet to keep off the fumes of forgetfulness, but managed it on on arrival at the other side of the river, began to feel much better. To cut cut short a long story, old Radamanthus, who judges the dead in Virgil's Aeneid, introduced himself as my judge, but I refused to accept his jurisdiction. I wanted a court-martial of British officers. He was only a rotten old Greek. He shouted, contempt of court, but I threw a, a, a chucked a Mills bomb at him, which scattered the millions of the mouthless dead in about two seconds and wounded old Radamanthus in the leg and broke his scepter. I then strode away, held a revolver to Karen's head, the ferryman who must be paid, um, climbed into the boat and so home. I gave him a Rouen note for 50 centimes, which I didn't particularly want. Remained Cerberus, whose three heads were, I noticed, mastiff. Dalmatian and <laughs> He growled furiously, and my revolver was empty, and I'd no ammunition. Happy thought, honeyed cakes and poppy seed like Aeneas. But none was handy. However, I had an excellent substitute army biscuits smeared with ticklers, plum, and apple, and my little morphia tablets carefully concealed in the appetizing conserve. Well, this same um, scenario provides State uh, Graves with the substance of a poem titled Escape in which there's one notable addition to the prose reverie. Um, The the queen of the underworld gets involved, who presides over death, but in this case, in Graves' case, grants him life from death. And this is passage two, an excerpt from Escape. Oh, may heaven bless dear lady Proserpine, who saw me wake and stooping over me for henna's sake, cleared my poor buzzing head and sent me back breathless with leaping heart along the track. And with this addition, he plants the seed of an idea about the significance of the goddess figure, which 30 years later blooms into one of the most extraordinary books on 20th century poetry um, uh, and and virtually everything else as well, Um, Graves is the White Goddess, subtitled A Historical Grammar of Poetic Myth and published in the aftermath of the Second World War in 1948. Proserpine in this poem is an early manifestation of the triple goddess theory, the goddess who is simultaneously mother, lover, and layer out in death. And Fran Brereton is surely right in seeing this much later book as engaging, quotes, if obliquely with the politics of the 1940s and over its shoulder with the politics of the Great War and interwar period. Graves had signed up as a young volunteer in August 1914, just a matter of days after his 19th birthday and straight from school. His first collection, Over the Brazier, published in May 1916, just two months uh, before his serious injury on the Somme, is the first embodiment of a Robert Graves we will see who is split into two halves. So this is a central part of my argument. Graves comes in two halves. And here, it's the collection itself which is split into two parts. Firstly, um, 
poems written at Charterhouse, 1910 to 14, all of which demonstrate an extraordinary precocity of talent. Um, and then part two, after his schoolboy poems, poems written before La Basse, 1915, in which the schoolboy attempts the transition to soldier and negotiates the related movement from a kind of innocence to experience and from home life to life at the front. A particular kind of doubleness literally haunts one poem from the collection called The Morning Before the Battle. In this, Graves represents his divided self in the form of an Italian sonnet, and in the opening octave, the first eight lines, he describes walking at noon in a garden, picking flowers, eating cherries, before the arrival of the personification of death, capital D, and of course, as in all sonnets, death is going to rhyme with breath. Passage three. Today, the fight. My end is very soon, and sealed the warrant, limiting my hours. I knew it walking yesterday at noon, down a deserted garden full of flowers. Carelessly sang, pinned roses on my breast, reached for the cherry bunch, and then, then death blew through the garden from the north and east, and blighted every beauty with chill breath. Grace's personal copy of Over the Brazier, which is in St John's College, notes that this is, quote, a garden in Bethune near the Collège des Jeunes Filles. But whilst he has a particular place in mind, it's clearly more of an archetypically poetic garden than a real one. This is a version of pastoral, and its setting of noon and its fruitfulness, symbolic of the high point of youth, its seeming debt to the corrupted gardens of William Blake's poetry, perhaps further reinforced in the Sestet, where the living presence meets his ghostly double. And this is uh, three on your handout over the page, continued. Um, so the second half of the poem. Oh, you're, I've either lost you already or you've already turned. Good. <laughs> That's reassuring. Good. Um, <laughs> I looked. And ah, my wraith before me stood, his head all battered in by violent blows. The fruit between my lips to clotted blood was transubstantiate, and the pale rose smelt sickly, till it seemed through a swift tear flood that dead men blossomed in the garden close. So a poem about the before and after of battle, about fruitful life giving way to violent death, in which the living being is confronted with his spectral double, one of the many ghosts that haunts Graves' poems. But it's no simple mirror image reflected back at him. Um, the wraith is battle-scarred, and the cherry fruit of the first part um, of the poem becomes a clot of blood on the lips. This becoming is described in terms of a subversive transubstantiation, which evokes the blood of Christ in the Catholic Eucharist yet again. And again, there's another theme that's um, perhaps coming back um, uh, uh, today. But it's a metamorphosis, I, I, in a sense that, that's relevant, but it's also a metamorphosis that's more like Ovid or Ovid by Andrew Marvell or something. Once death enters this garden, what blossoms is not flowers, but dead men. The grotesque paradox of young life turning, transmuting into its deathly opposite in this manner, 
eerily prefigures Eliot's The Wasteland, the poem that only sold, whatever it was, 472 copies, but which is the great poem about post-war desolation, where one of the many voices of the poem asks another, that corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? In Graves' poem A Dead Bosch, written only a few months later, but after a further lifetime's worth of experience, the reverse transformation from death into a kind of macabre life is perhaps presented in less overtly metaphorical terms. But in a sense, this makes it the paradox of war all the more immediately vivid. And this is passage four. This is perhaps, I don't know statistically, but my sense is that this is Graves' most anthologised of poems. If I could be wrong about that. Stuart will tell us later. <laughs> to you who'd read my songs of war and only, and only hear of blood and fame, I'll say, you've heard it said before, war's hell. And if you doubt the same, today I found in Mamet's wood a certain cure for lust of blood, where, propped against a shattered trunk, in a great mess of things unclean, sat a dead Bosch. He scowled and stunk with clothes and face a sodden green, big-bellied, spectacled, crop-haired, dribbling black blood from nose and beard. Well, here there's a metamorphosis of the dead corpse into a grotesque material life, and it comes through his active presence. He sits, he scowls, he stinks, he dribbles. So this and the previous poem are poems that embody division, paradox and metamorphosis. Death comes unexpectedly out of life and life out of death in ways that are perhaps characteristic of the war but also characteristic of a naturally mythological imagination at work. Well, um, Graves encountered the corpses that inspired this poem in the days before his death and return to life, whilst employed in clearing out the dead from Mamet's wood. The battle immediately preceding this clearance was one of the bloodiest on the Somme. Um, I'm afraid Blake Cerberus, not Dachshund. What are the others? but nevertheless very good. Although Blake's, Blake's monsters always feel a little bit too cuddly for my, for my life. Um, nothing cuddly about this. Um, this is Christopher Middleton's... Uh, Christopher Williams, pardon, pardon me. The, the Welsh at Mamet's Wood um, in, in the National Museum of Wales. The 38th Welsh Infantry Division, tasked with taking the wood, lost 4,000 men in the process. Two other notable poets were involved around Mamets, David Jones and Siegfried Sassoon. Graves and Sassoon, both officers in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, had first met and become close friends in November 1915 at Bethune. By July 1916, they were in different battalions, but stationed close enough on the Somme uh, for them to be able to meet on the 14th of July. And the companion poem to a dead Bosch, written at exactly the same time, provides another instance of the two opposite impulses in Graves' war poetry. This poem, Letter to S.S. to Siegfried Sassoon from Mamet's Wood, is later titled Familiar Letter to Siegfried Sassoon. And it's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a poem, it's a letter, it's a hybrid between the two. 
And it imagines a world beyond war where their friendship um, and poetry alike might have a chance to flourish. Like Escape, it's a poem about getting away from danger and death. And like Escape, it's also a mythological poem. And yet here the myth is more local, more rooted in the Welsh landscape, which provides graves throughout these early poems with a vision of a different life, both before and potentially after the conflict. And Wales was, at this point for graves, the closest thing to home. Wales is representative of home. So uh, from this letter, passage five, he's addressing Sassoon. You'll see where Math, Mathonwi's son, spoke with the wizard Gwydion and bade him for South Wales set out to steal that creature with the snout, that new discovered grunting beast, divinely flavoured for the feast. No traveller yet has hit upon a wilder land than Merion, for desolate hills and tumbling stones, bogland and melody and old bones. Fairies and ghosts are here galore, and poetry most splendid, more that could be written with the pen or understood by common men. And then over the page. In Gwaith Dibach we'll rest a while, we'll dress our wounds and learn to smile with easier lips. We'll stretch our legs and live on bilberry tart and eggs. Um, and imagine the circumstances in which he's writing that, that stationed there on the Somme and clearing out dead bodies from Mamet's wood, um, and he's writing that. Um, it's based on the, the myths he's referring to. You need to go and read the Mabinogion, which is a great thing to, to read, the, the sort of storehouse of Welsh mythology. So a poem full of friendship, life, the exuberant counter to the hellish wood. A kind of imaginary escapism, but it's more than that. Or it's important because it's escapism. There's nothing unimportant about escapism in these circumstances. This poem was published, and a dead Bosch was republished, in Graves's third collection, whose title, Fairies and Fusiliers, points once again to the divisions inherent in his poetic subject and focus. And many of Graves's poems in these early collections are to do with childhood and invoke in either simple or um, complex ways the imaginative possibilities of childhood experience with, of, of nursery rhyme and nursery mythology. It's again in one of the ways in which these collections feel double, that poems redolent of childhood experience should be collected alongside war poems. In some instances, the two come together. For example, in A Child's Nightmare, which describes the recurrence of a nursery dream on the overnight train that he's taking to hospital after his injury at High Wood. He's drugged by... Um, well, he's... he's, he's is drugged by morphia and he's dazed by pain and um, he's revisited by a monster that haunted him in the nursery as a child and that disappeared but it comes back on the train um, and it repeats it, it drinks his blood and it repeats the same word over and over passage 6, a child's nightmare morphia drowsed again I lay in a crater by high wood he was there with struggling legs eyes as big as eggs purring as he lapped my blood his black bulk darkening the day with a voice cruel and flat cat 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 he said cat cat 
Graves was very interested in dreams and was treated by Rivers um, after, uh, um, after the war. And he wrote a book about the interpretation of dreams. In a sense, this poem is straight from the textbook of the horror writing genre. But beyond that, he's also taking us into the dark places of psychology, revealing the dreamland monsters that persist under the veneer of daytime adult rationality and control, and that are, in some other senses, <coughs> synonymous with the experience of war. However, in a later poem written in about 1924 to Sassoon, or rather to Sassoon's double with the soubriquet Captain Abel Wright, the question of doubles and, identi ide um, doubles and identity comes back in complex ways. So Graves creates a persona called Richard Rolls, and Rolls is um, speaking to a, the persona he creates for Sassoon called Abel Wright. And Rolls puts this hypothesis... He says um, that he did in fact die in 1916 and on the date of Graves' birthday, the 24th of July. And at this point he was replaced by a double who looked, like the, looked exactly the same, but was not him. Similarly, Rolls speculates, Sassoon's double, Wright, may not actually have survived his earlier heroic actions. Passage 7. So, Graves to Sassoon or Rolls to Wright, or both. And I don't know for sure, but I suspect that you were dead too, killed at the rectangle one bloody morning of the same July, the time that something snapped and sent you berserk. You ran across the line with covering fire of a single rifle, routing the Saxons out with bombs and yells and your wild eye, and stayed there in careless occupation of the trench for a full hour, reading, by all that's mad, a book of pastoral poems. Then they say... Then you walked slowly back and went to sleep without reporting. That was the occasion, no doubt. They killed you. It was your substitute strolled back and laid him down and woke as you. So, Wright, the literary double of Sassoon, whose actions encapsulate the absurd paradoxes of war. You read pastoral poetry in the midst of single-handed attack on the enemy. Um, a double, then, who didn't, as he thought he did, survive but who was replaced by a double. These are perhaps not so much questions of identity as expressions of the uncertainty of knowing anything for sure again about oneself, about others. Expressions of fracture, of division, of discontinuity, even where things might appear to be normal. There is not even the small certainty uh, afforded by the unanswered question. Even questions themselves can't be clearly framed. Um, passage 7 continued. What I'm asking really isn't who am I or who are you? You see my difficulty? But a stage before that. How am I to put the question that I'm asking you to answer? In Goodbye to All That... Graves' autobiographical account of his younger self, first published in 1929. He claims that in one of their earliest meetings in 1915, Sassoon took him to task for the realism of Graves' war poetry. And Sassoon's diary at the time reflects the view that Graves' poetry is, quotes, bad, violent and repulsive. Um, so again, this is seeing poets change their style as, as they... As they live through the war. 
Um, Graves writes this. This is, I'm, I'm missing out a passage, aren't I? Passage 9 on your handout. <coughs> so Graves says, In return, Sassoon showed me some of his, his own poems. One of them began, Return to greet me, colours that were my joy, not in the woeful crimson of men slain. That's the tone in which Graves wants us to read that out. Yes, from Sassoon uh, to victory. Um, this was before Siegfried had been in the trenches. I told him in my old soldier manner that he'd soon change his style. Graves was the younger of the two, but at this stage he was the more experienced in war. That was going to change as well. And therefore he was more advanced in finding an appropriate poetic register. That's the argument. Such an exchange between the two may or may not have happened, or happened in quite this way. And the unreliability of memory and autobiography is part of what Graves' memoir is about. Throughout Graves' book, uncertainty is the only thing that's certain. Regardless, by 1918, Graves was planning a fourth collection of poems, and Sassoon had been sent and wrote comments upon um, the typescript. And... um, Again, um, this is unpublished, but it's available for you to see on the First World War Poetry Digital Archive. Um, This is Sassoon um, jotting down his comments on uh, Graves' collection, The Patchwork Flag, planned publication in 1918. And Sassoon says, books seem short of guts somehow, so it's no longer bad, violent and repulsive. It's not bad, violent and repulsive enough. You just can't win, really, really. Um, I don't like the few grim war things mixed up with all the irresistible nursery and semi-serious verses. Um, It's a bit, and it carries on, it's a bit like turning the pages of a scrapbook later on. I still believe that you lack passion and don't feel things deeply. But you're so bloody young, he says. (laughs) Writing to Owen... Um, who went to Graves' wedding, attended Graves' wedding, um, in the previous December, Graves had exclaimed, quotes, For God's sake, cheer up and write more optimistically. The war's not ended yet, but a poet should have a spirit above wars. And by the time of his letter to Sassoon in August 1918, in which he responds to Sassoon's criticisms, Graves had got married and was started to think about a future. And his reply reinforces the sentiment expressed um, in the earlier letter to Owen, passage 11 in the handout. Um, So Graves writes, I can't write otherwise than I am now, except with hypocrisy, for I am bloody happy and bloody young, with only very occasional lapses. And passionate anger is most ungrateful, and I can't afford to stop in these penurious days. Um, And anyhow, my antique silk and flower brocade continue to please the 17-year-old girls and other romantics for whom they are attended. And why not? Worrying about the war is no longer a sacred duty with me. On the contrary, neither my position as a cadet instructor um, nor my family duties permit it. It's interesting there that he echoes the sentiment of that... um, Yeats' poem that um, we, we were looking at earlier um, on, on being asked for a war poem, where he says, you know, he's had enough of meddling who can please a young girl on a winter's night or is an old man, I can't remember. But, you know. um, it, it's, it's that same thing. Poetry needs to know its place and it's not about war. However, however, 
I think there's as much significance in the parenthesis there, the bit in brackets, as there is in the rest of the letter. And we've seen this again today in um, Rose Macaulay's um, poem Picnic. There was the bit in the brackets, which actually the eye went to. That seemed like the heart of it. Um, and you get that in May Herschel Clark's The Mother, the response to Brooks the Soldier, where it's the stuff in brackets at the end. And if one night her heart should break, well, lad, you would not know, which is actually the heart of the poem. And it's the same in E. Cummings's um, uh, My Sweet Old Etc., where the bit at the end in the brackets is the heart of the poem. In a sense, what's marginal is often actually um, freighted with the most meaning. And um, in the rest of the letter, Graves is protesting too much for me. It's too much the studied public persona. Uh, and it's the audience and the bank balance and duty all of which is shoring up the interior horror implied within that phrase, with only very occasional lapses. So, um, Sassoon um, is uh, patronising graves, in a sense. Um, and yet, if we look at one of the poems that Sassoon would have been reading, uh, planned for the patchwork flag, um, maybe we can recalibrate things. Sospan Vach, one of the poems intended for this new collection, brings home experience and front experience together, and also his, his consideration of things related to where home is, um, because this is a, a song about, about Welsh things. Back home, the poet meets four miners, and they're taking shelter um, under a tree from a hailstorm in the spring. And they start singing... Now, this is me playing with technology, so this could go horribly wrong. No, no, not yet. No, 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 no. Hold it. Yes, there we are. Well, it makes me want to go back to, to ABBA and to the National Library of Wales. So, yeah. um, so they start singing Joseph Parry's hymn, Aberystwyth. And he enjoys it so much um, that he asks them to sing another song, Sospan Vach, a song this time with no religious affiliation, a Welsh song, a folk song, 
and a nonsense song, importantly a nonsense song, which describes a series of domestic accidents involving a cat, a comical soldier, and a saucepan boiling over. And I've got my trusty book of Welsh songs here, um, and I'll give you a sense of the English translation of this song. Marianne has hurt her finger, and, and David, the servant, isn't well. The baby in its cot is crying, and the cat has scratched Johnny Bach. Little saucepan boiling on the fire, big saucepan boiling on the floor, and the cat has scratched Johnny Bach. Diebach, the soldier, with the tail of his shirt hanging out in honour. Um, Diebach, the soldier, uh, what sort of shirt did he have? White one with a blue stripe. Mary Ann's finger is better, and David, the servant's in his grave. The baby in the cot is grown, and the cat rests in peace. Oh, tuck it in, Die. <laughs> Um, what Graves writes? Uh, let's 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 look at let's look at the Graves poem, passage twelve, the section of the po- uh, of his poem um, after the nonsense song. So, um, this is this is his description. He's just asked them to sing it. He writes, "Who knows a tune so soft, so strong, so pitiful as that saucepan song for exiled hope." Despaired desire of lost souls for their cottage fire. Then low at first, with gathering sound, rose their four voices, smooth and round, till back went time, interestingly. Once more I stood with fusiliers in mammoth's wood. Fierce burned the sun, their cheeks were pale. For ice hail, they had leaden hail. In that fine forest, green and big, there stayed unbroken, not one twig. An official insignia depicting the little saucepan was worn by various Welsh regiments, and the poem tells us that the song was sung by the Welsh, Royal Welsh Fusiliers around Mammoth's Wood, as does David Jones in his long poem in parenthesis. Well, um, what's it about? Well, this is Keris Matthews, who's a tremendous singer. I couldn't find something with a, har- uh, a harmonised version, but this is, this is just as good. Sounds something like this. Oh, I've broken it. It's my fault, isn't it? I've broken it. Welsh English 
international rugby that same swimming real uh, <laughs> yeah, yes yes and, uh, yeah well it's the great rugby it took until 1987 for a physical memorial to be placed at Mamet's Wood in honour of the 38th Welsh Division. I th- I'm not a historian, but I think there's some sense in which um, people at the time thought the job was rather botched. Um, but this rather marvellous um, memorial is there now. Graves's poem, however, provides a different kind of elegiac memorial. The song, the saucepan song, takes Graves back to the battle where the ice hail of the spring shower is metamorphosed going back into time, into leaden hail, and the spreading, sheltering tree that they're standing under into the broken stumps of the battle-scarred wood. This nonsense song is the trigger for some very complex elegiac feelings, which is often how poetry and music works. In a sense... Then this poem might be leading us to think in new ways about this bringing together of opposite modes of experience in Graves's war collections. For Sassoon, the juxtaposition of the lighter-hearted lyrics with poems about war was in keeping with what at this point he perceived to be Graves's lack of feeling, lack of deep feeling. And yet the rubbing of life against death, innocence against experience, the ordinary against the terrible, is played out with real intensity here. And elsewhere. All of Graves's early war collections combine experience of war with life beyond it. Yet rather than this being, as Sassoon implies, somehow compensatory or untruthful or ameliorative, it's precisely this juxtaposition that makes the horror of war all the more sharply delineated. We even see this in an early poem, Limbo this time an English sonnet, where the sense of absurd dislocation of war comes through the close relation of the ordinary and the terrible, of constructive and destructive forces separated by only a few miles or minutes. Passage 13 on your handout. Um, After a week spent under raining skies in horror, mud and sleeplessness, a week of bursting shells of blood and hideous cries and the ever-watchful sniper, where the reek of death offends the living, that poor dead can't sleep, must lie awake, and the horrid sound that roars and whirs and rattles overhead all day, all night, and jars and tears the ground. When rats run, big as kittens, to and fro they dart and scuffle with their horrid fare, and then one night relief comes, and we go miles back into the sunny cornland, where babies like tickling, and where tall white horses draw the plough leisurely in quiet courses. Life on the front occupies the major part of that poem, but behind the lines life goes on as usual. Babies are born and they like being tickled. Horses plough the fields. And there's a latent symbolic weight to that which can be you know, compared, I think, interestingly, to Edward Thomas's as the team's head brass. It's the dislocation between these two coexisting modes of life which is absurd, and to write about it and to embody that dislocation in the shaping of poetry and the shaping of collections is, I think, to be true to that absurdity. Um, I'm very moved by a a seminar given by the scholar Randall Stevenson once where he was talking about 
looking at the, the Times newspapers from the, the days immediately after the first day of the Battle of the Somme and looking at the, um, the reports, the propagandist reports from the Theatre of War, as it was called, which is abutted hard up next to what's going on in the theatres in, in, in London's West End, you know, where you could go and see a review called Somewhere in France um, and uh, Harold Brighouse's comedy uh, Hobson's Choice was on, you know, which is a comedy about having no choice at all. And all these sort of extraordinary um, things. Anyway, that, that sense of, of, of absurdity is, is, is something differently that, that, that Graves captures. The 1918 collection that Graves was planning and Sassoon was criticising didn't get published. Um, he, he, he got criticism, um, I think, from Marsh as well, and he decided that he would, you know, best, best to leave it at this rate. However, in, in 1920, he produced instead a more expansive collection called Country Sentiment, where the war poems are presented as a kind of afterthought in a section titled Retrospect. So it's already something that he's trying to put behind him and get away from, and yet they're there. This change of plan led to the neglect until recently of a very interesting poem called The Patchwork Quilt. This was to have been uh, the poetic epigraph to the 1918 collection. He wanted it to sort of explain his planned collection in some ways. But the poem wasn't actually published until 1982 and then only as uh, part of his, his selected letters um, because he sent the poem in a letter to Sassoon um, in 1918. Um, so it, it got published, you know, tucked away in a hardback selected letters, which is very good hardback selected letters, but um, there it was. And so it didn't get published at all for decades, but it's only really, I think, with, um, well, last year, last December, with the publication of Michael Longley's really excellent selected poems of Robert Graves, for Faber, um, that the poem has got the recognition that perhaps it, 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 it should have. Longley, the poet, a poet deeply interested in um, the nature of um, poetic representations of war, um, takes the poem and uses it as it was intended, as a prefatory poem that opens his selection of Graves' poems and it's not just a selection of his war poems, obviously it's a selection from, from Graves' whole career. The um, poem justifies, I think, what were to have been the seeming paradoxes and dislocations of the collection that never was, but also justifies his other collections. It has a metaphor, an extended metaphor, which compares the collection to a patchwork quilt made of different fragments of cloth, stitched together and it goes like this passage 14 on your handout Ooh, last page I, I, I'm, I'm conscious I, I heard Michael Longley read this poem out at the last Robert Graves International Conference here in Oxford and I'm conscious of how far anything I do I can't do this just... You, we need Michael Longley here, but we haven't got him, so we have to make him. Here is this patchwork quilt I've made of patterned silks and old brocade. 
small faded rags in memory rich, sewn each to each with feather stitch. But if you stare aghast, perhaps, at certain muddied khaki scraps or trophy fragments of field grey, clotted and torn, a grim display that never decked white sheets before, blame my dazed head, blame bloody war. Once again, it's a poem that for me embodies paradox and contradiction. Imagine such a patchwork quilt. Imagine where the eye would be drawn. Imagine how much more powerfully resonant are those scraps of muddied khaki, precisely because of their location amongst the silks. And think about how that resonates in metaphorical comparison with Graves' collection of poems. Well, as, as we've heard earlier um, a, a, a bit, uh, Graves deliberately did for his own reputation as a war poet. Even by the second edition of Over the Brazier, he was already starting the process of editing his war poetry out of existence. In that early second edition, he cut two poems on finding myself a soldier in which he's imagined flowering as a white rose he imagines his soul coming, coming out of the white roads. It transmutes um, to one with, a quotes, a heart more red than blood. And he cut that. He couldn't, couldn't abide it any longer. And also a poem called A Renaissance, which sees a kind of physical and emotional maturation from the girlish to the manly. It's a, it's a very interestingly gendered poem, where once again there is a doubleness in, quotes, learning to play the butcher's part though the woman screams inside. By the time of the later editions of his collected poems, which he oversaw and edited himself, he cut out virtually all of his early war poems. And in um, the articles in The Listener that, uh, um, that, that, that Mark was quoting earlier, by 1941, he was making it clear that he wanted to leave his own war poems behind as, quotes too obviously written during the war poetry boom. The older Graves is fundamentally sceptical about war poetry. He sees it as a specific genre made possible by the circumstances of one more alone, and indeed, dare I say, although Stuart says I can't, one's poetic style alone, the Georgian style. Sorry. LAUGHTER um, For the older graves, for this older graves, there are more important subjects for poetry than war, and he's on record as making it clear that poetic effort would probably be better located in a different subject matter. However, and this is good news for us, I think, um, poets are rarely the best judges or editors of their own work, and especially when it comes to older poets judging their younger work. Think about Wordsworth and the havoc he played with the prelude and all of that, yes? Always trust the first manifestation of a poet's, um, of a, of a poet's production, not what he, what he or she does with it later on. However, we can forgive the old soldier his prejudices against poems about a subject that remained deeply painful to him. The war didn't go away. The war never went away. He might have edited out the poems. He couldn't edit out the experience. And he couldn't edit out ways in which he went back to write about it by different means um, through much of his life. His feelings about war would have been intensified by the loss 
of his son David during World War II on active duty for the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in Burma in March 1943. This year, however, affords us a good opportunity to re-evaluate the importance and significance of Graves' early war poems, to bring back to life once again the young poet who was killed on the Somme in 1916. With all due respect to the old poet who had such a long and flourishing poetic career until his second death in Mallorca in 1985, this year, on our lips his life is hung. <laughs> <laughs>